Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode four of Kip on Learning. I'm your host, Dave Levin. And with each episode, we'll be sharing insights, inspiration, and challenges from across the Kip network and beyond. Given who we are collectively and individually and the communities we serve, 95% of whom are Black or Latinx, this moment, this fight for racial justice is incredibly deep and personal to all of us. Today's episode, we'll be having a conversation on the systemic racism, anti-Blackness, and white supremacy that is at the root of the national protests. We're going to talk about how Gen Z has been an incredible force in mobilizing and organizing for change across the country. And we're going to talk about how schools can truly be anti-racist and help students and families heal from racial trauma they experience. We stand in solidarity with all those who are calling for justice, for an end to police brutality, for criminal justice reform, and for the end of systemic racism against Black people. Some of the ways this is happening is through national communication and efforts, and others are happening on the ground. Before we get started with today's conversation, let me share a couple of ways our regions are standing in solidarity in this powerful moment. At KIPP DC, members of the KIPP DC Public Schools Board of Directors are matching every dollar donated by staff to the NAACP Legal Defense and Education Fund, or Campaign Zero. At KIPP Minnesota, following the lead of Black organizers and community leaders, they are organizing supply drives for families as well as supporting existing drives for many of the close to 500 KIPP Minnesota public school families who do not have access to groceries, drugstores, or public transit due to lockdowns and school closures. On June 3rd, KIPP Minnesota held a day of action where staff, alumni, parents, and community volunteers stood in solidarity for racial justice and came together to help distribute supplies that are needed. These are just a few of the examples happening across the network. And across the country, KIPP leaders, teachers, students, alums, and families have been joining in their local protests. For today's episode, I am joined by Aaron Trent Johnson, the CEO, principal coach, and founder of Community Equity Partners, a coaching and leadership development firm that helps leaders and organizations committed to creating embodied practices and equitable cultures. Aaron calls her approach liberated leadership, a heart-centered and mindful practice built upon her deep belief that when people are resourced with curiosity, compassion, courage, creativity, conscious relationships, and community, they will have the skills to liberate themselves from systems of oppression. Aaron also serves as the senior advisor for the Equity Lab. I'm also joined today by Kyra Mitchell, chair of the NAACP National Youth Work Committee. She's a recent graduate of Eastern Michigan University, and throughout her time in the NAACP, Kyra has worked with various units across her region to implement training, ensure units have the resources they need, and ultimately expand the NAACP's reach to communities that need it. She uses her platform in the NAACP to advocate for women's rights, criminal justice reform, black political power, and more. Aaron and Kyra, thank you both so much for joining us. Aaron, you know, let's start with you. You are working with schools and communities across the country. I'd love to hear and understand a little bit of how do you see the intersection 
of the systemic racism and anti-blackness that kids and parents experience outside of school and the systemic racism and anti-blackness that they may experience in school. I think a lot of schools, school leaders, and especially white school leaders and systems leaders in education believe that it's an if racism shows up in schools or may. And the question is not if or may. The question is really when and how. It's always there. Schools have been built on systems of oppression since the inception of public schooling and only was exacerbated post-Brown Board versus education. And so today we see extremely segregated schools and we see in the school community a way in which control is really the, the driving force and And I think in many schools that were built on the no excuses model, and there are so many beyond just KIPP, there are so many school, public school districts that adopted that same model. We see control being the driving force and that control is inherent in the very structures that uphold systemic racism and anti-blackness. The idea of controlling or policing the black or brown body is a legacy that has lived from the enslavement of Africans and from colonization and from land theft that continues to metabolize or metastasize, I should say, within the schools at every level. And so whether we're talking about controlling every minute, whether we're talking about controlling every body, whether we're talking about controlling how we even connect to our bodies, that control is, I think, one of the two most pervasive ways that systemic racism and and anti-Blackness intersect. So there really isn't a separation. I think it's really about the consciousness of school leaders and educators being aware of the way that the school is positioned within the system of oppression and within the system of racism. I'd love to hear a little bit more about this. So, you know, obviously, you know, this has been, you've been working with a number of KIPP schools and KIPP leaders over time who have been trying to move away from control being the dominant characteristic of school. And that is a very hard shift oftentimes. And what are you finding the most effective way of helping school leaders and white leaders shift away from systems based on control? And what do you see as the healthy, you know, next step for schools? For many leaders, they're used to a very regimented way of being taught how to lead, which is deeply connected to white supremacy culture, right? There's one right way. We only focus on binaries. It's either this or that. And so that either or has kept, I think, a lot of leaders stuck because it's up here. It's all cognitive. It's like we have to make these strategic choices. And it has created a paralysis, if you will, that won't allow leaders to see that there are multiple possibilities for creating change, for creating new structures. And so what I think is really powerful about this portal that's opening right now, that I have a historically cautious as a Black woman and hopeful outlook on is that it is changing the way people think about the language of abolition. 
And so we talk about it with the police, but we should be talking about it in education. And so some major things will have to shift, but it'll start with the embodiment for white leaders to get deeply connected to the separation from their humanity and the separation from the emotion, the messages that simultaneously say you deserve to be in leadership just because, which are the exact opposite messages that have been internalized by Black and brown leaders due to anti-Blackness, which say, I don't deserve, I don't belong, I might question myself. White leaders just don't have that. There is this internalized entitlement to leadership, this internalized belief. We have the answers, even if we don't have the answers, we're going to try. So I think when we do embodied work, we get in touch with Where does that come from? Where do those messages come from? How long have they been living inside of you? Are those legacy messages that they come before you? Did that come from an experience of trauma that is in your present life? And how can you reprogram those automatic messages of I have all the answers and get out of the cognitive space all the time and get really connected to the body? And that's where we're going to start to see a shift in culture rather than sort of looking at what strategies, what policies and practices we can change. How can we reimagine and recreate a new culture that's built on love and liberation, that centers Black bodies, that centers Black leadership, that believes in Black leadership? Yeah. We're going to come back to that, Aaron. You know, I think part of what we're experiencing, I mean, one of the things that I think has been particularly inspiring from my seat is to see the the way in which our alums and our students are in Gen Z have really engaged in this moment of liberation and both calling for change within KIPP and joining the struggle outside of our walls for racial justice. And I think what you described resonates very deeply about the embodiment and the recognition of their own power as leaders. And Kyra, that is your work. That is what you're doing with the NAACP. And so I would love to, you know, turn to you for a second, just hear a little bit about what are you hearing from the communities you're working with and the the young, or at least young to me, people that you're working with in Gen Z who are really on the forefront of this movement for racial justice. And what are the changes that are, you know, front and center for them in your mind? Right. So when you look at a lot of people, especially a lot of people that I work with, and it's not just the younger audience that is having this conversation. I think a lot of audiences are. But the conversation around defunding the police, and I think a lot of times when people say defund the police, it's like, oh, no, like it gets up in arms because there's a lot of confusion around it. And when people are saying we want to defund the police, they're not saying we want to take away all the money. We want to take that money and reallocate it to something else in the community. And it's been done before in history. If you look back and see, there's been different areas that the police have been defunded. That's when we get things like paramedics and other things like that. So I think when people start to hear these ideas, they go up in arms and they want to stop. But that's not necessarily what we want, what we mean when we do that. We want community reform. We want reform in all areas, not just the police force, because police brutality isn't the only fight that black and brown people are fighting. They want reform in the healthcare system. They want reform in education and things like that. Aaron touched on a lot of really great things that there's a lot of microaggressions and overaggressions and overt racism that's happening all across America and across the world. So it's not just reform and police brutality and the police force that people are looking for, but reform in all areas. People are asking for a lot more trainings and education to happen 
when you compare American police systems to other countries, you see that the education really just isn't there, the education and training. And it shows, it shows when you look at police brutality and police incidents that happen with aggressive forces, you see, so in different countries, they have three to four years of training and their numbers are so much lower than us over a course of 10 years. Whereas in America, we have less than the high school education sometimes for police officers and we have over a thousand cases for just one year. And the comparison is really there when you look at education and the training that we have there. And then outside of all of those, I think outside of policy changes, something that the younger audience and the younger generation is really advocating for following this movement is a lot of healing because healing definitely needs to happen within the black and brown communities because for centuries there's been a lot of trauma that's been passed down from generation to generation and it just hasn't been able to properly heal yet. And I think after this movement, a lot of black and brown young people are definitely advocating for those outside of policy reforms and changes. And a couple of things, I mean, to follow up on. And then Aaron, we're gonna come back to you because the trauma is exactly where we're gonna go back to Aaron. I mean, when I've engaged with people to like the defund the police argument, for example, I've found myself thinking about, Aaron, the point you make about either or thinking that is sort of rooted in white supremacy culture and that this is like either or, either there are, you know, we have militarized police or we have no police. And people don't realize that there is a broad spectrum to the point that you're making. And it shows the interconnection between kind of both of what right. you're talking about. And I do want to talk more and hear, Aaron, obviously your views on trauma. But first, Kara, I'd love to hear a little bit more about like, there are so many young people who are now saying, you know, our time is now. We want our voices heard. And what advice do you have for you know, high school students, middle school students, young students, or recent high school grads who are saying, I really want to lend my voice and time and passion. Where are you guiding them? So I think the first advice that I would give is definitely that you can't fight this fight alone. I would definitely recommend to have a group of people that you can work with because this work becomes a lot. It can become draining at times. It's going to be a quick overnight fix, we know, because we've been fighting it for centuries. But if you find a group of people that you can work with, it definitely helps alleviate some of that tension and some of that stress that can be there because the work does become a lot. To also remember to take care of your mental health when the work does become draining because we aren't going to always have all of the answers, but we're always going to want to push forward. But when that work does become tiring, to remember your why because you'll always remember to keep fighting and you won't. You'll be a little bit less likely to want to give up when it becomes harder and you see keep having to fight these uphill battles. When you remember your why and why you started your fight and why you wanted to organize in the first place, you'll keep wanting to fight until you get to the top of the hill and you see that victory. And I think another thing that our generation really has to our advantage is social media, like no other generation before. So definitely to utilize your resources in that way, because what you're doing in your community, somebody else could be doing all the way across the country. And you can use social media to connect and see what they did and see what you can also mimic in your community to get that fight done. And then in terms of just organizing and things like that, I would also recommend just like power mapping, seeing like where your allies lie. So you kind of know where to dictate and put your energy at because people who are going to agree with you, you don't have to put that much energy into. You still want to keep them close, but people who are going to be directly opposed to you, you're going to have to put a little bit more energy to get them more towards the middle and then more towards your side. So kind of power mapping when it comes to like elected official community leaders, identifying stakeholders, things like that, people who you can reach out to to get those long lasting changes implemented within your community. Thanks, Kyra. For the first time, I'm seeing sort of our folks who are just old enough to vote in the KIPP network are really engaged in, you know, when you're talking about elected officials, to echo something Aaron said about balancing cautiousness and hopefulness, 
Like, do you see the 18 to 24 year old group that you're really working a lot with? Do you see them viewing politics differently? Or do you think they're going to engage in voting differently than that has happened over the last, you know, 50, 60 years? Like, how are you seeing folks saying, you know, I'm not even going to engage there because we have to replace that system? Where are you seeing things there? So I definitely think that the 18 to 24 and 25 crowd is definitely becoming a lot more engaged in politics than they have been in the past. I think the 2016 election, presidential election, was a wake-up call for a lot of people because you saw a lot more people getting out to vote and things like that. But it was almost a direct change from the 2008-2012 election when we elected President Obama, and then 2016 when we had President Trump come into office. So I think 2020, I think, will be a great year despite COVID, despite everything else coming on. I think that what is happening right now across the country is empowering people more than ever to want to get out and vote because they're seeing that on these smaller local levels, they can make these impacts, they can run for office, they can get these policy changes in their local elections and things like that. Because I think a lot of times people have focused on only the presidential elections in the past. But now with a lot of these local things happening, people are getting involved in their city council elections. They're getting involved in school board elections. They're getting involved in all of these smaller state and local things. And then also running for those positions because a lot of young people have said the people who are currently in these positions, they're not working for us like they should. It's time for us to stop asking them to work for us and do the jobs ourselves and get into those positions. And I think it's a great thing. People are getting those seats at the table that we've never really had before. I think there's definitely going to be a shift in the next, I would say, 10 years. I think there'll definitely be a shift in what our political system looks like because a lot of young people, especially young black and brown people, are taking over those spaces that they never really had before. I think there's definitely going to be a positive shift and change in what politics looks like, political engagement, things like that. The youth and college division for the NAACP. We've actively been working on building black political power. That's a slogan we have on some of our t-shirts, I build black political power. And I think it's really inspirational to see people who just like 17 turning 18, they're excited to vote. Um, they're excited to get out there, excited to make these changes because it's just been implemented so far. And I think we're starting to get away from the idea of like, my vote doesn't matter, my vote doesn't count. And I'm, I'm glad to see that change happening because a lot more people are encouraged to vote instead of being discouraged because of so much voter suppression that's happening across America. We are fortunate that you are leading this work, Kyra. We need to, to make sure there is an army of young folks engaged in, in what you're trying to do. Thank you so much. And Aaron, let's go back to something that Kyra mentioned and you mentioned in the beginning. I'm just you know, over here snapping for Kyra like she didn't know the whole time. <laughs> just, you're right. it, it, yes, the, the organizer of me is in love with everything she said. So, but continue. Yeah, I... Uh, <laughs> There were lots of snaps all around. And both of you mentioned this idea of healing from trauma. Mm -hmm. And obviously, Aaron, this is a deep part of your life's work. And so there's a big question of what's like, the right. I mean, there's obviously a big question of does school even reopen in the fall, mm -hmm. right? So there are all these uncertainties. And yes. so right now, layered on top, we have this movement of racial justice happening, you know, in which kids are experiencing a degree of trauma and also a degree of activism and, as you said, hopefulness. But underlying the genesis of that is trauma. And then you have COVID-19 crisis, which is not over. Right. And it is, in many states, increasing. And so when we resume school in whatever format, you know, what advice, Aaron, do you have for schools, teachers, parents, just about how to help young people and families 
process and heal from the trauma that they are experiencing and have experienced, obviously, not just over these past months, but decades. I think that that combined trauma of individual and communal trauma and the combined generational racial trauma came together to spur some of what is the reckoning now, because it's to the point where collective bodies cannot take it anymore. The first question is what to do with the people who are leading schools and making decisions for schooling and how to support the trauma that they are carrying into their leadership. And I very much coach from a mindset of you need to heal to lead. And that, you know, many leaders are unaware of the racialized trauma that they carry in their bodies when they're making decisions for schools, when they're making decisions about what schools stay open so that children can eat, when they're making decisions about whether or not they can speak truth to boards or to power about the racialized policies that are harming black and brown bodies. If you feel as though as a black body, you, your expression of trauma is, I can't show up as angry or I can't show up as incompetent, right? And you have those two things coming together. Those are the manifestations of trauma. For white bodies, it's indifference, which is the most pervasive, I think, skill set and also challenge that exists. It's not just a waking up. It is a getting in touch with the ways in which harm has always been done and not getting stuck in the guilt and the shame of that and actually doing the work, the lifelong work of bringing in healing practices for leaders, for teachers, and recognizing the racialized trauma, not just the the feelings of disconnection and the feelings of fear that we cannot educate in the way that we've always educated because of COVID, but also what are our relationships And something that Kyra mentioned as well, which is also a part of trauma healing, is doing communal work. This is about shifting culture. So again, when we think about, you know, who is your squad? Who is your community? For white people, who are you working with in the white community to build a new culture, a new practice? And and Reza Manaka mentions this a lot in, in my grandmother's hands. And I coach white leaders around this often to support your healing so that you can So you might recognize this reckoning might be calling for some white leadership to shift, to make space for black and brown leadership and not to make space out of pity or guilt, but to say, we might not be qualified to lead because we have not centered our healing. And there is a lot that we need to grapple with in order for schools to be equitable and just. And we need to create space for that. And we need to pause and the last thing I'll say is, you know, when I when COVID first hit, I coach many folks outside of the KIPP network as well. And so a lot of assistant superintendents in public school districts who do center equity and liberation were really struggling with their own trauma that they were experiencing and having to make decisions that they knew were going to harm Black and brown children, especially Black and brown leaders, where they see the children as their own, as an extension of themselves. And so... Many of them were saying, we're making decisions that are focused on continuing to punish children for not learning in this new circumstance, right? And rather than centering the healing that's needed for children right now, children who are watching their family members die, children who are watching their parents lose their jobs. And so there is a need 
to be able to center the humanity of all bodies. And that comes from healing. That doesn't come out of strategy. And so I think the more that we center that going into this new school year, the more we'll be able to make decisions that are going to center the humanity of black and brown bodies. And that will also mean that they will be able to be be able to receive the best education possible as well. And I think that's something we forget. Thank you so much, Aaron. I mean, I wish we could keep talking for much longer. And to both of you, again, that is, you know, there. The point you were just making to end there is, I think, something that all schools also have to grapple with, that there is no education without healing from trauma. There is no education without racial justice. And this idea that these things are somehow, you know, separated is, I think, rooted in a historic sort of, you know, white supremacy culture where it is separating things that need to be whole. So Kyra, Aaron, I thank you so much for joining us. This has been just a remarkable conversation. I look forward to continuing it and look forward to seeing the work that both of you are doing continue to have such a deep impact across the country. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. And Kyra, thank you. Amazing work. No, thank you. Today's conversation was grounded in action. I am inspired by Aaron and her advice on the actions that all leaders need to take and the specific actions white leaders need to take to help heal the trauma of systemic racism in the communities we serve. I'm also inspired by Kyra's leadership in organizing thousands of other young people across the country and those at KIPP who have been mobilizing to demand change and police accountability. As Kyra talked about, one of the most effective forms of activism is civic engagement. And the easiest way to engage is to educate yourself and vote. Through voting, we can make our voices heard, our issues seen, and our actions felt. The power we wield by casting our vote can change our communities, states, and the nation. Please take the time to visit whenweallvote.org KIPP or text KIPP to 56005 and register to vote. It's the first step in creating a more just world for us all. Thanks for listening to the Kip on Learning podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe to get alerted about new episodes and visit our website, kip.org, for job opportunities and information about our schools. We will be back soon with even more inspiration and insights from our community.